Welcome to the Ready Eddy Podcast, where we tell the story of startups in the outdoor sport industry through the voice of their founders. Hey guys, before we get into today's episode, I wanted to talk about our membership program. Uh, We recently broke a pretty big milestone. We have over 100 startups and small businesses on the platform offering up to 50% off all their product and gear. If you're like me and you're always looking for a new uh, backpack or new gear for your addictions, whether it's skiing, snowboarding, camping, surfing, whatever it is related to the outdoors, you can hop onto this membership and peruse all of the brands. We're constantly adding new ones um, to really support all of your outdoor activities. We also have a number of travel companies. So if you're looking to take a trip, whether it's to Machu Picchu, South America, wherever, um, you can save on that as well. We also have a number of food brands, whether you need a new energy bar or you just need to, f- you want to find something uh, that's different and check it out. You can f- save while doing it. Um, you can also apply to become an ambassador for a lot of these brands. There's a ton of perks. So if you are interested in checking this out, head over to readyeddy.com slash members and get your first month. This free. episode is brought to you by AIM Adventure U. Upgrade any adventure and learn online. Whether it's climbing, skiing, photography, or backpacking. Learn more at aimadventureu.com and use the code readyeddy20 to get 20% off any course. What is going on, Red Yeti Podcast listeners? Josh Salvo here, your host. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with one of the co-founders of Liftopia, Evan Reese. Evan, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Excited. Definitely. All right. So Liftopia, for anyone who's a skier or snowboarder that's listening, has obviously heard of Liftopia. <laughs> but for the listener that may not be aware, how would you best describe what you guys do? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, for people who do know us, most of them are pretty familiar with Liftopia.com, which is our consumer brand. Um, but I think behind the scenes, what Liftopia has been focused on for the past you know, 14 years or so is helping the ski industry and increasingly sell their ticketing products online and in advance. Um, and so we do that via our, our consumer brand, Liftopia.com. Um, which is sort of a, a very efficient marketing channel for our partners with uh, e-commerce technology to sell to their direct audiences. Um, and so a sort of straightforward example of, of that would be if you go to a resort's website and you buy a lift ticket on their website, in many cases, it's actually our technology behind the scenes. Um, but then I think what's uh, even harder to sort of figure out by just searching around the internet is we've done a lot of work to help them um, figure out how to price their products. Uh, such that it's compelling for consumers uh, to to buy those tickets in advance and sort of reach a little bit of a balance between, you know, how might we help people spend more time consuming our products um, in a way that is also beneficial for our business. Right. So basically what you're saying is you help a ski mountain be like, okay, so this $100 is what you want to charge, you know, ticket window price. But if they book it, three months in advance and they get X percent off. And I'm sure you guys have data that sort of backs up what the best sort of um, trajectory is to go with something like that. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, it's, it's become increasingly sort of scientific over time. Um, but basically, you know, historically speaking, whether you're a ski area or a water park or an amusement park or you know, someone who's selling whitewater rafting, you think of your product as just like the ticket is the product. Um, but realistically, what someone is selling is January 13th today. 
Um, and that's a different product than January 13th on January 12th. Um, and what we spend our time doing is helping them understand sort of what should the price of all of those products be at all different times um, and then how those prices can move over time in order to sort of provide uh, value to the consumers um, and, and give them better predictability in their businesses. That's really interesting. How did, how did you come up with this? Are, like, what's your background? Do you, are you an avid skier? Did you realize like, through your work experience that this was just an issue that you guys could solve? Yeah, you know, it's sort of funny because I uh, – so when, when Ron and I started the company, um, uh, I, I must say I never, you know, one, intended to start a company <clears throat> or two, intended to work in the ski industry. But I, I was uh, and am, uh, you know, a very avid skier. Um, I, we had come out of the travel industry and, and had worked at uh, Hotwire, which is, a, you know, an Expedia company. And I sort of weaseled my way into managing hotel markets and ski destinations because I, I loved the, the ski product. Um, and, you know, we had this sort of aha moment that um, we realized, hey, look, here we are at a company that helps, you know, hotels more effectively sell online. And I really loved giving hotels guidance on how sort of small movements in pricing strategy could yield large movements in consumer behavior. Um, and we realized, hey, look, the way that ski areas are selling their tickets today is kind of the effective equivalent of an airline selling all of their tickets at the airport um, and having every flight be priced the same. And so what we thought was, hey, it makes arguably as much sense, if not more sense, for the ski industry and other sort of high volume ticketing businesses to adopt uh, you know, revenue management, which is kind of the, the core term, um, to empower the pre-sale of, of their products. Um, and it was sort of, it was so uh, obvious a um, opportunity that we sort of assumed that someone had already done it before. Um, and there must be a reason that we hadn't seen it. And we just did a little bit of research and said, hey, look, it looks like this hasn't happened yet. No one has sold a lift ticket on the internet before. Um, no one has sold a lift ticket for a specific date before and in advance. And we figured, hey, let's give this a shot because at some point in time in the future, resorts will prioritize selling online in advance. They'll prioritize saying, hey, Saturdays are different from Wednesdays. And they'll prioritize saying, hey, if you buy three months in advance, it's different than if you buy a week in advance. Um, and so we, uh, we sort of strung together um, a business plan. And that sort of kicked us off into a zone of, well, hey, maybe we should give this a try. And uh, it was, you know, the two of us were, you know, really well intentioned, but really didn't have any experience starting a company. Um, <clears throat> but it was just too obvious to not give it a go. Um, and uh, so, yeah, here we are today, uh, you know, almost 14 years later. How, how did you approach ski resorts to get them on this platform? Because I'm <clears throat> sure like in 2005 slash 2006, when you were launching this, you probably had a lot of like executives or people at resorts sort of looking at you weird, <laughs> being like, "You want to do what?" <laughs> yeah, it's uh, you know, ignorance is bliss a little bit, um, and I think we, you know, to us the the, the logic was was super straightforward, but the um, we sort of underestimated how much the ski industry had sort of been um, burned by 
by folks who basically pitch them stuff that isn't good for the resort, but is good for those people. And that's, you know, one of the wonderful things about selling skiing is that it's something that we all love. Um, and people are so passionate about it that sometimes they're trying to craft jobs that, you know, support their passion, but don't necessarily support the, um, the, the resorts. Um, and so when we first started knocking on their doors, you know, not only did we not have a, a ski industry background, you know, I, I, I wasn't working a lift at some point in time in the past. Um, but we also didn't live in a ski town. We we're from San Francisco. So we were new and, and we, we kind of looked like, uh, you know, sort of the, the distillation of all of the people who had screwed them over in the past, um, you know, coming together at once. Um, and so when we first started, we said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to call the resorts in Lake Tahoe because, you know, we're based in San Francisco and we're going to roll that out in Lake Tahoe. And then we're going to take that and, you know, template it out into other markets. Um, because again, we were naive and just assumed it would, it would work. Um, but what we realized is we had a really hard time getting people to call us back. Um, and, uh, we, we basically ended up launching about a year late and with only seven partners. Um, and, you know, we thought we had launched a year sooner with 50. Um, so it was, you know, modest beginnings, uh, at best. And you're totally right in that the, I think much of the industry viewed us with um, uh, skepticism, if not hatred. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyways, (coughs) that's interesting. Okay, so you launch with seven resorts, and then your your job kind of shifts to now that you have these seven mountains, you now have to get people going to your website to purchase these tickets, right? Or with the mountains funneling the people. To the- no, yeah, you're right. I mean, we we, um, we we started with the marketplace side of our business, um, so so we were a consumer brand first. And you know, I mentioned earlier that we we obviously now are powering a lot of the e-commerce on resorts websites too. But so we did have the you know traditional <clears throat> chicken and egg problem that marketplaces have, which is you know you need stuff on the shelf to find people, and you kind of need people to find stuff on the shelf. Uh, and, and we were, we were pretty scrappy because we just didn't have any money, um, back then. Um, and, and, you know, we've always been a scrappy company. I think we still are today, all things considered. Um, and just kind of a funny story, you know, our, our first winter, um, we had seven partners and we sold a total of, you know, $40,000 worth of lift tickets, um, across seven partners. And, Going into our second season, um, we we ended up signing up about 35 ski areas, um, and some of them were pretty big names. Uh, and so it was kind of make or break for us in that second year because if we didn't perform for the bigger names, we knew that they would bolt. Um, and if we didn't perform in the second year, we knew we wouldn't be able to raise any money to support the growth of the business. Um, and it, it's... It, it was as of mid-December that second year, we we had a term sheet to raise money to support growth of the business, but we didn't actually close the round um, uh, until the end of the season. And so what that meant in our second year, we had 35 partners and a $2,000 marketing budget. Um, and so we, we had to get 
pretty scrappy uh, and, and ended up, you know, growing, growing our booking volume that, that year, you know, about 12 X, which was cool, but it, it was a, a pretty dire um, position we were in when we finally got the money in the bank from that first round <clears throat> because it was March 27th and uh, we hadn't taken salaries for two years. And uh, as of March 27th, I, I had like $600 in my bank account had, you know, both Ron and I had, you know, tens of thousands of dollars in credit card debt. We owed rent in three days. Um, and uh, we raised money three days before that occurred. So I was on route to sell my car, which really wasn't worth that much, to be honest, in order to make rent. And, and so I guess we we got lucky that we we, we got the, the investment when we did because we were able to take our first salary after a few years. Um, now, I guess someone could say we got unlucky that we didn't raise it sooner. Um, but, uh, you know, it did it did really help to establish a scrappiness in the business that does uh, continue today. So theoretically, that money came a few months later or Liftopia may never have existed in its current yeah, form. Totally. And I, I think, you know, I know you're an entrepreneur yourself sort of lucky unlucky points and and you do see that there are points in time where had it gone another way uh you know i could be doing something very different um now hey it, had it gone the opposite direction it could have been much more successful much more quickly <coughs> but but i i do think uh you know you got to be prepared for the luck that you're gifted and and uh kind of go from there plus as entrepreneurs we like pain <laughs> yes but I, and and there is you know a, a, the naivete of a, a young entrepreneur, which I was when I started this, and now I'm an older one, uh, can benefit you because you sort of don't know the the hardship that's ahead. Definitely true. Okay, so you had two. Th- what did you guys do? Was there anything in particular that you would attribute your success of tw- uh, increasing your business by 12x with a two thousand yeah. dollar budget in that second year? Yeah. Well. I, you know, I, if for people who know me, they know I can nerd out for hours on the, the pricing strategy component of our business. Um, and that was really foundational to, to what Ron and I identified as an opportunity when we started the company. And I think what we knew at the time, if you think about it, um, you know, you're buying behavior when you buy a hotel room or an airline ticket, um, th- there are certain things that influence whether or not you buy it right now. Um, you know, one of them is obviously the, the price point. Uh, the other is whether or not you'll get on that flight. And so what you talk about, like capacity constraints, a hotel can't sell 110 rooms if they only have 100. And with a ski area, um, it's pretty rare to see a sold out sign. And so what that meant is we knew that in order for this to work, there had to be a compelling reason for the consumer um, to commit you know, today versus waiting until they could see, you know, what the weather would be like or whether they were hungover on any given morning to decide to go skiing. And, and we were, you know, pretty obsessive about quality of pricing strategy, um, and empowering the resorts to have, you know, ever improving quality of pricing strategy over time. Um, and, and that is, is and has been, you know, the primary reason for, you know, the, the success that we have seen is just a, 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 a huge focus on the bottom of the funnel, the bottom of the marketing funnel um, on behalf of our partners, um, because that, you know, it, it has to be priced right in order to drive the consumer behavior. 
It's, it's a really good point. I, I think about it myself. Like I was always that last minute lift ticket purchaser because <laughs> totally. it was always based on the conditions that always dictated where I was going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether I was going to take a trip out West or ski somewhere in the Northeast, I'd always be like, okay, who has the most snow? Who has the likelihood of getting snow? I'm going there. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's, you know, we still see it today when we enter new markets. You know, we went into Switzerland last year where, where people will respond saying, well, I don't, I don't think my customers, they don't buy this way. And the, the, the challenge is, say, well, if you don't sell this way, they certainly won't buy this way. And so we, we had to create um, a baseline off of which we would measure pattern. So we knew, for example, hey, look, in theory, a Saturday is worth more than a Sunday, but both a Saturday and a Sunday in order to get you to buy in advance need to be less than you would buy at the window. Now, does it need to be 15% off or 10% off? And, you know, are they the same or, you know, or Saturday and Sunday fundamentally the same or different? And we, we tested and iterated and figured out more over time how differentiated each day was in absolute terms and then tested and iterated how each day was over time as well. Um, and that continues to be, you know, a, a primary sort of differentiator between what our company does and what other companies do, because, you know, over time, e-commerce software is really a commodity. Um, I mean, it's easy to put something up for sale on the internet. Um, it's easy, even in terms of, you know, the air quotes, dynamic pricing that we do, it's easy to have different prices for sale for different days. Um, the stuff that's hard is knowing what the price should be at any given time. And then what's even harder is measuring how well a strategy is performing um, using relative terms to, to other strategies so that you say, well, is it working or is it failing? And what adjustments should I make in order to improve? Um, so yeah, it's, it's really weird. I, I think if, if I were to claim that in 2005, you know, I knew exactly what we'd be doing, you know, 13 years later, I, I'd be lying. But uh, we, we were ruthlessly focused on quality of pricing back then, because, you know, building a website that has stuff for sale really isn't that hard. That's a really good point. Um, so figuring out the pricing, obviously, is the most important part. But how did you drive enough traffic, quality traffic to the yeah. site in those early years? Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a blend of a lot of different things that scrappy startups do. I mean, we it was early days of um, Facebook, uh, so we were, were building following there. We uh, were uh, early building our email list in a rudimentary form. Um, we, uh, we, we definitely spent what little money we had on, you know, early stage of Google AdWords. Um, and I think at, at at the time, we actually weren't that great at what we did, but the industry wasn't as good as we were because they just hadn't graduated to online marketing as core competency yet. Um, and so we, I think we were the only voice out there. Um, so I'd love to give ourselves a ton of credit for being incredible consumer marketers. And I think, you know, we were pretty thoughtful. Um, but there, there was also if, if no one is talking about the thing that you're selling and you're the only one, it's a little bit easier to cut through the noise that doesn't exist. That's a really good point. Um, 
And okay, so after a few years, then I think it was LiftTickets.com came into the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like competing with them, and what do you think ultimately put you guys on top? Well, you know, throughout our history, we've seen a number, you know, a bunch of different sort of lookalike clones. Um, and I think the, the, the biggest differentiator, again, is our focus on the bottom of the funnel. Um, and, and because it just having tickets for sale doesn't mean that they will sell. Um, and so that, that <clears throat> and I, I don't know, you know, all of the history of whether it be lifttickets.com or, or any of the others that sort of, you know, appeared and went away. Um, but, uh, I, I think we just were a little bit more focused on the most critical drivers of, you know, e-commerce success in these ticketing businesses. So I hate to just be a broken record and, and talk more about, you know, the, the pricing strategy component, but, you know, it's, it's, and I know you've had some experience with e-commerce businesses. If, if the bottom of your funnel doesn't work, you do not have a business. Um, and you can't spend at the top of the funnel because the bottom of the funnel doesn't work. And, um, that just has always been something that we've been focused on, whether it be, you know, within our consumer brand or, uh, within the, the, the technology that we now, you know, have deployed at, you know, 110 or so ski areas and water parks and stuff like that. That's really interesting. Now, in, in obviously, you had the background at um, Hotwire. Were, were you just always an analytically driven person, like looking at the numbers and seeing sort of the the metrics and how they all work together? Was that just sort of like a natural um, thing for you? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, for better or worse, I feel like certain types of data have always resonated with me um, and others haven't. So, you know, it's sort of a funny thing where I never, kids, when I was a kid, people who were my age at that time were huge into baseball and football and basketball and who their favorite players were and what all their stats were. And literally I could not pay attention to that at all. Um, but I would be able to pay attention to like exactly how many horsepower, a you know, 1993 BMW M5 had, you know, like that type of weird stuff. For some reason that resonated with me when I got to, you know, my first job at Hotwire for whatever reason, the stuff that really was clear to me is how important sort of relative metrics are. So, you know, if you measure performance only based off of revenue in a highly variable um, business where demand is all over the place, you're not seeing the whole picture. And, and you know, I, I give a lot of credit to sort of the travel industry sort of educating me about some of these concepts, whether they be just sort of core revenue management principles or, um, you know, the e-commerce funnel or, or some other sort of more granular metrics like look to book ratio or sorry, book to look ratio. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm sort of droning on here, but I, I, I do think that the, the pricing stuff, it was never something that I sat down and said, I like to think about pricing, but, uh, it's probably what I've spent, you know, the past 16 years doing, if you include my, my power time, as well as, um, my time here at Liftopia. 
That's interesting. Okay, so over time, you you raised that first round of uh, of funding, right? You went out and you increased the number of um, resorts on the platform. What what was next? What other big hurdles were you guys faced with in those earlier years? Yeah, well, I I think a lot about sort of inevitability in markets. Um, it was sort of the reason for founding the company and. You know, what we had seen in the broader travel world, and uh, I don't know all the history, but if you look at sort of early days online travel, um, and there are some predecessors to the sort of larger brands that we're familiar with, like Expedia, Hotels.com, et cetera. But what what happened first with online travel was, um, you know, and I'll just use Hotels.com as an example, and this is oversimplified, and there are a lot of people who know online travel much better than I do, so take this with a, with a grain of salt. But what initially happened when they came out late 90s is no one was comfortable buying on the internet yet. And they said, well, here's a differentiated place where we can have segmented inventory for sale because these, this is a, a sort of a blocked um, group of customers. And so Hotels.com got you know, differentiated inventory because they were for sale on the internet. Um, and then Expedia and Orbis and Travelocity and everyone else sort of arrived on the scene. Um, the next thing that happened is the brands, whether they be Hilton or Marriott, Starwood, whatever, said, well, if this works in a third party world, then it should work in, you know, with our own customer base next. And uh, so then Hilton.com started selling hotel rooms in the same way that Expedia was selling hotel rooms. And so what we said is, hey, if what we, what we thought at the time is if Expedia could go back in time or, or any of the providers, there, there are obviously a lot of big brands, if they could go back in time and empower the direct sellers with their technology, they might run a lower margin business, but they, they would actually be able to empower someone going to Hilton.com in addition to someone who's going to Expedia.com. And so we said, it is without a doubt inevitable that Skiarias will wish to sell in this way. And we think we're uniquely good at this. So why don't we empower them with our technology? Um, and that was when we, we rolled out the, the white label side of our business, which is called Cloud Store. And you know, it sort of has a funny, similar um, bunch of metrics from its early days as liftopia.com because the first year that we went live with our, our white label cloud store, uh, we had seven resorts using it. Um, so yeah, that was it, not so much a challenge as an opportunity because one of the benefits of these concepts coming late to ski ticketing was that one, we, we had a good sense of the things that the travel industry got right, um, but we also had a sense of some of the things that they might do differently if they could go back in time. And so when, when we rolled out um, our cloud store product, there were a lot of sort of channel management strategies that we tried to do differently than how the, the hotel industry specifically evolved. That's really interesting. Now, with the sort of progression of the big resort passes like the Epic Pass yep. and the Icon, has that affected you guys in any way? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, I think there has always been um, some amount of consolidation in the ski industry. It's just taken sort of different names over time. And when we first started, 
one of the larger um, groups was American Skiing Company that owned a bunch of ski areas, you know, and it no longer exists. I think what's a little bit different, however, is the evolution of the the multi-resort passes um, and sort of the evolution of season passes in general, kind of away from it being a hyper premium product to being sort of a, a you know, a, a more of a discounted product that is trying to design itself for universal appeal. <laughs> but, you know, for, so, you know, Vail was super innovative when they, when they launched their Epic Pass program. And then, you know, if you look at things like Mountain Collective that came later and, you know, Icon today, uh, you know, not many people know that we actually are the technology provider behind the Mountain Collective Pass. Um, and so that's a, a version of our white label product is Mountain Collective. If you pick up the phone and, and, um, and call the Mountain Collective phone number, you're actually talking with someone who is a, a Liftopia.com or a Liftopia employee. Um, so in, in some ways, because it definitely changes the the way certain parts of the population consumes the sport. Um, but we've also been sort of along for the ride a little bit. That's really interesting. Sort of like immersing yourself with all the players. It makes a lot of sense, especially with the amount of data and expertise that you guys have with this. It doesn't really make sense for a resort that doesn't necessarily have that insight or expertise managing that platform. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're pretty smart folks. And I, I think they, you know, and different um, different groups have different levels of management and different levels of uh, sort of ability to successfully build software. Um, but I, I do think, you know, behind the scenes, there's been this software evolution of the ski space, too. And, you know, at some point, it just it makes sense to instead of you know trying to do everything yourself, which is in a nutshell, the, the history of ski area operations and all the innovation that occurred in sort of the first wave of ski industry growth was in, you know, lifts and snowmaking and physical operations. And they were like super innovative in that space. But in the software space, at some point, it makes sense to say like, hey, do you, should you code up your own accounting software or, or should you use something from Intuit? And, and on the e-commerce side, um, I think, you know, obviously different organizations of different scales can uh, attempt to build software on their own. But at some point, as they evolve into being sort of 100 percent e-commerce businesses, they do seek sort of best in class um, providers to manage things uh, in a way that's more efficient than trying to spend on those resources internally. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I, the way I look at it is like with, with um, web development. Yep. Um, with, with with sites like um, Squarespace and Shopify and WooCommerce and other totally. things like that, where it's just like, why the hell would I custom build a website when I can just use one of these tools? Yeah, and in fairness to them, you know, there there is a historical point of sale software structure um, that has existed for better or worse, um, and the point of sale software historically has done some things incredibly well. Um, but they're not e-commerce companies. And so part of the reason they might choose to try and build something themselves is because they're, they're sort of having to play nice with the legacy software system. Um, so, I, but, but you're, you're right. I believe over time, <clears throat> this industry will continue to follow others in that 
you, you don't go out and buy one system that does everything. You go and choose best in class componentry to do different components of your business, um, whether it be, you know, Salesforce for CRM or, you know, an e-commerce provider that does this um, or, or, or even, you know, to sort of throw a lob into the operation side of the business, you know, in theory, Askeria could manufacture their own snow guns, you know, buy some aluminum and right. machine it. Yeah. Um, but it just doesn't make sense because the provider will be able to do that more efficiently. So, yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thank you to our sponsor who helps make the Ready Yeti podcast possible, AIM Adventure U. AIM Adventure U offers online courses related to climbing, skiing, backpacking, photography, and so much more. They offer courses like strength training and injury prevention, intro to trad climbing, learning how to ski bumps, how to be a pro outdoor photographer, backcountry navigation, and so many more. AIM Adventure U partners with Backpacker.com, Climbing.com, Warren Miller, and other industry leaders to create this in-depth course content. If you want to take your next adventure up a notch, then head to aimadventureu.com and use the code READYYETI20 to get 20% off any course. Okay, so with the history of Liftopia, you've obviously come a long way from 2005 <laughs> uh, when you started the business to now working with pretty much every res most resorts in yep. in North America and then even abroad. Um, what has been one of the some of the hardest parts about really growing Liftopia? Yeah, you know, it, the as funny as it sounds. The hardest thing today was the hardest thing when we started, um, and a lot of it has to still do with um, essentially convincing the the, the Skiria personnel that we are good for them. Um, and uh, you know, again, the, the the data behind the business um, is so straightforward, beneficial for the industry, um, but it can scare people a little bit, um, whether it be because we're, you know, still air quotes outsiders from San Francisco, um, or because it's just, you know, envisioning a business that, you know, just a couple of years ago wasn't online being a wholly online business is pretty scary. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we, we still every year, um, you know, have to, to, earn our partnership. You know, we only deserve to be in this industry if we are worth more than we cost. Um, and, uh, that continues to be, you know, one of the hardest things for us is, is just, you know, uh, gaining clarity within our partnership base and our prospect base that, Hey, look, like you're fundamentally better off with us than you are without us, whether it be because of, you know, the, the return on marketing spend that they can now measure that they couldn't measure before, or because of the, the sort of data they have access to across the network that helps them understand how well their business is performing relative to the rest of the continent. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's not their fault if they don't work with us. It's, it's our fault for not proving to them that we're worth more than we cost. 
I, I love that 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 statement or that you know, I, I almost want to call it a quote. <laughs> um, you know, you're all, you only stay in business if you're worth more than you cost, and that's so true. Like you're not in business to sort of dupe your customers, right? You're in you're in business to help them add value to what they do. And obviously, if you don't add more value than what you're charging them, then they're not going to work with you. Yeah, and and some businesses do show up. And, you know, I don't think there, I think most people who start businesses aren't trying to dupe their partners. Um, there are some whose business models sort of rise and fall um, because, you know, I always sort of ask, like, does this business model scale to infinity? Like if it represented the entire market, would the market be bigger? Um, and I think there are a lot of legacy business models whether it be, you know, ski shop deals or membership clubs or Groupon or whatever, where there isn't a path to market growth along with um, that sort of penetration of the business model. Whereas, you know, with what we do, we, we believe that if the entire market does what we do, the entire market will be larger. It will speak to a broader audience. It will, you know, move away from sort of, um, 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 making it scary for people to enter the sport or give it a try, et cetera. So. That's, that's interesting. And, and I, it's very important as a business grows. And I'm think I'm thinking of this more so from my own experience, but like when we started ready Yeti in the beginning, we didn't really know the value and like a lot of the right. work that we would do would be for free to create yep. case studies to sort of be like, okay, we work with these brands. We did X, Y, and Z, what was the result? Okay, what is this worth? Can we scale it? Is it adding to their bottom line and helping them do what they need to do to build their business? Yeah, and and, you're very familiar with sort of this, the requirement of a two-sided value proposition in that you you, you have to be good for both the people who are selling the products and for the people who are buying the products. Um, And that's you know, the best businesses out there to me solve for both the supply side and the demand side, but sometimes they're also the hardest businesses to run. Um, now, but I only have experience running this one business, so maybe that's just me speaking about myself. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but I do think if, if you, if you look at, you know, some of the biggest companies out there, you know, like Google search helps you find what you're looking for, um, by delivering you accurate results and, you know, people marketing on Google find customers efficiently because of that same reason. Um, and I, like for us, the, uh, you know, our, our mission statement is we help people, we help people spend more time doing the things they love by helping our partners run those, their businesses more successfully. And I, I think if you lose on one or definitely if you lose on both of those, you don't really sort of deserve to be in business. Um, and you might be able to sort of eke it out for a while, but I, I, to me, that's the type of business that I, I, um, appreciate as opposed to the ones that just sort of make value at a point in time opportunity or, you know, at the expenses of the market itself. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good point. And, and I don't think there are, I don't think the majority of businesses are that way. At least in, in, in the I level agree. of what and you're talking about. <clears throat> yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's, um, it, there are a lot of different types of businesses that are successful, uh, that are successful for very different reasons. Um, you know, but I, I just, 
the, the you know the pricing inefficiency stuff to me is is solving a problem for people who are buying and people who are selling. And if you do it right, it amplifies for both. And that that to me is important. Oh, I agree. I totally okay. agree with that. What what have been some of the biggest mistakes that you've made with Liptopia? Oh, I hear other people make mistakes, but I have never done that. <laughs> um, no, I'm trying to think. There there are a bunch. Um, you know, I think one of the challenges of being an inexperienced entrepreneur is that sometimes you, well, oftentimes you have a chip on your shoulder because you, you know, you don't have the experience, um, and, and that can sort of alter your approach. Um, and so one thing that was funny is it was, we, we always considered ourselves an underdog internally. And if you combine that with the fact that we had a bit of a chip on our shoulder because we didn't have experience, even though in our heads we were pitching an underdog approach, the receiving end was we were talking like we, we knew more about their business than they did, the ski areas, um, which really isn't a good way to come across. Um, and so, so that's definitely just in terms of how we presented ourselves um, I imagine we, we talked as if we were know-it-alls, um, even though, you know, like that wasn't what was going on in our brains as we were having those conversations, because we, we sort of viewed ourselves as a long shot and we were trying to you know, kind of look, look bigger than we were. Um, so that, that's sort of one, I, I think just in a lot of the the trends in these mistakes are associated mostly with humility. Um, you know, a, another challenge that we had is, you know, we're sitting in San Francisco and again, don't have experience. I've never done this before. And you see so much um, caricature of what entrepreneurship is or what a startup is or whatever. Um, and that can lead to, just some stupid decision making. I mean, you know, for example, if you, if you raise a round of money, like, why do you need to go and tell everybody just to look cool? Um, and, you know, in, in our world, we, we did that. And again, from our perspective, it was to showcase legitimacy. Um, but all it did was shine a light on us such that others might enter and be competitive. And it amplified the, oh, wow, these are just outsiders from San Francisco calling on me, looking to you know, take my business away from me. Um, so that, that was another is I think sometimes you don't, we were a little, um, you know, too concerned with looking the part, um, which, you know, if I could go back in time, I'd definitely change. <coughs> uh, presented another time when, when we, when we were launching our white label product, the cloud store stuff, we were super excited about it. And, you know, we, we presented it at a travel conference at, at Focusrite in innovation forum. And literally all that did was tell people about what our next competitive move was, <laughs> which really isn't that smart because there weren't any potential partners in the audience. It was just sort of us you know, trying to show the travel industry that we were, you know, part of their group. Um, no, it was good 
practice for presentation and stuff like that. But I, I just, that's something I would change. What advice would you give to someone that uh, wanted to start a business, whether it was in the outdoor space or really just a, a business in general? Oh man, I can drone on a bit. Um, I think that there's this difficult balance when you're starting because it's important to vet what you believe to be an opportunity with people who have experience that you don't have. Um, and you really have to balance when to listen and when to ignore. Um, because a lot of people tend to give advice that is kind of binary based off of their past experience, either success or failure. Um, and so you, you kind of have to assemble a bunch of different opinions distill them into what you think sort of the global opinion is, but then gut check that against your vision and intuition. Because the, in the end, the reason you're starting what you're starting is because you, in theory, are more capable to do that than someone else is. And so, yeah, you need to gut check that with folks who, in theory, are more experienced and more capable than you in general. Um, but take their feedback with a grain of salt because mo most people will point out all the reasons something won't work. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's important to not get, um, yeah, l listen, but not always so much. Yeah. It, it, you saying that reminds me of like advice from your parents based off of their own personal experiences. While a lot of the times it can be good totally. advice, it's not always applicable just because when they grew up, it was different than what you're going through. Totally. While there are obviously some things that you can take value in, you shouldn't follow it to a T. Yeah, and, and usually if someone does ask me my opinion on something, I try and start with, hey, look, like take what I say with a grain of salt because I have baggage and everyone else does too. Um, so here's how I think about it, but here's some of the things that might frame why I think about it that way. Um, so I, I try to be really thoughtful with like, you know, setting that tone before I say things, but oftentimes I'll forget and just, you know, run my mouth a bit. <laughs> um, so, uh, and, uh, and you never know. Sometimes the person who is stating the opinion, <coughs> you know, it might be based off of what happened to them this morning, you know? So right, uh, exactly. Uh, to take, Take it all with a grain of salt. And, um, you know, statistically speaking, more businesses fail than succeed. Um, but you can always sort of look at, like, what's my next best worst case scenario after this um, to sort of validate my direction. Where do you see Liftopia going in the next year, five years, 10 years down the road? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a strange thing to say, but... Um, a lot of it is more of the same um, because I, I, you know, I was shocked in 2007 at how slow the adoption curve of these sort of fundamentally sound practices were. Um, and so the evolution has been pretty slow. Uh, I think actually in many ways we were too early in the North American market and as I'm sure you probably know, sometimes when you push, people push back. Um, and if they're not ready, um, it can actually delay uh, the, the, the progress. Um, so, you know, what, but 
Yeah, what what are we doing? We're we're spending a lot of time improving our software such that we deliver greater value to our consumers, deliver greater value to the supply base, and you know accelerate in new markets. So we've uh, you know as I mentioned earlier, we 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 launched our first sort of white label pricing partnership in Switzerland last year. I think the all of the inevitabilities that are true in the North American market are true in every global market as well. Um, it's just a question of um, when those things will happen and what you know politics or cultural differences you have to navigate. Um, and what what is uh, funny about <laughs> both domestic ski areas and international ski areas is that um, everyone will say that they are unique, um, which is true. Uh, but in that, you know, everybody is unique. Um, and so there are always sort of reasons why something um, may be different in a new market. But in, you know, the, the, the big question is, hey, whether you're in Switzerland or South Korea, um, do some people not go sometimes because they woke up that morning and decided not to? <laughs> and the answer is yes. And whether it be weather or snow or hangovers or whiny children, um, that problem exists. So I, I personally believe that and I'll just talk about the global ski industry first. So in terms of global ski industry ticketing, you know, there is a point in time in the future in every global market where, you know, ticket sales for ski areas are the same as ticket sales for airlines in that, yeah, there's a counter at the airport where you can buy a ticket, but no one buys them there. Um, and the U.S. market is very far from that. Even today, I mean, the sort of the most progressive ski areas, you know, within our world, maybe do 75% of their skier visits pre-sold. Um, but that is very high outlier. Um, and so I think there's just this inevitable transition from offline to online. <clears throat> and, you know, some markets are going to sort of go baby steps and some are going to go a little bit faster. Um, so yeah, I think that there's the the evolution of how we help markets move confidently in this direction, and, and the sort of underlying altruistic component of that is how do we help the industry price and distribute in a healthy way, um, such that they don't um, increasingly focus on a, a fixed group of customers who are you know just buying season passes because uh, you know one of the like challenges with the evolution of season pass business is, you know, the, the per day cost of skiing is quite low, which is why it's so big. And that's great for you and me who are diehard skiers, but what it's resulted in is massive increases in window rates, either to support the past sales growth themselves or to like make up for the, the effective ticket price on that past business. And what that means is the cost of entry to the sport has really skyrocketed. Um, so we're, we have, uh, hey, we're a for-profit business, but we do have some very high level altruistic goals with regards to helping the industry price in a healthy fashion. <laughs> beyond that, I think there's sort of value beyond just the the pricing strategy that um, we can provide our partners on the white label side, and there's a huge amount of value we can provide on the consumer brand side in terms of helping people understand that, hey, like you are welcome in the mountains 
there is a place for you and helping them find the place that is most right for them. As, as people have sort of less time and less money to spend when they're seeking the experiences that they choose to spend their time and money on, they want some amount of certainty that um, those experiences are going to, you know, um, they will deliver on the expectation that they had. And one of the wonderful things about operating a network is you can start to observe consumer behavior within that network and see correlations within customer groups and resorts such that you can help people find the next experience that is you know most suited to them. <clears throat> now that was like a long-winded version of like, hey, you ski at uh, Wyndham and, and Whiteface uh, and people from your area who ski at Wyndham, Wyndham and Whiteface are highly correlated with these three resorts in Colorado, Utah, and Montana. So when you choose to take your trip, these are the ones that you should consider first. Um, and that, that, that to me is that there's a lot for us to do with all the data that resides on the platform to benefit the consumer. And what that really ends up doing is benefiting the resorts because <clears throat> what, what resorts are obsessed with is like earning a customer for life. So they're, they're seeking trial out of the customer and then they want the customer to come back. <clears throat> if the customer has made a fundamentally better decision before they try a place, because it's more right for them. When they get there, they're happier, which means that they're more likely to come back to that resort. And if you view that in the eyes of someone who's never skied before, if their first step into the sport is really good for them, they're more likely to make a second step into the sport. And that's you know one of the biggest challenges that the resort that the industry has is people who try once and walk away. Um, and and you know some of that is through like marketing things, but some of it is just how do we help people understand that the mountains are open to them too, and then help them with their decision-making process by you know, giving them confidence in not just the price available for the product, but that the product is well-suited for them or that the resort is well-suited for them. Um, and and that, that really is sort of the benefit of network effect um, within our world. There's so many great points you brought up there. <laughs> um, it's a little long-winded, but as you can tell, I, I, I talk a lot. So. No, that's great. I think there's a tremendous amount of value in what in everything you just shared. And it, it's like each time I was like, ooh, I should also I should mention this. And then you kept going. I'm like, oh, I should mention this. Um, but I, I really think uh, there's a few main points that you brought up that I think are really important. One is the, the barrier of entry for skiing and snowboarding has gotten higher. And figuring out a way to address that and then also making sure that first timers have a good experience and you put them in the circumstance or situation that they will have the highest chance of having that. Because yep. I've talked to so many people who are like, oh, I've tried it once. You know, it was kind of a horrible experience. And then they explain why, you know what I mean? Yeah. And totally. then there's me on the other side be like, oh, come on, let's just do it one more time. I guarantee you it'll be a good experience. Just, you know what I mean? Yep. So that, that it does. It's interesting because the industry has a. Uh, uh, let me see if I can say this accurately. You know, like everyone knows that skiing is an expensive sport, right? So like it, it has an exclusivity problem, um, but, but it also has this inclusivity problem. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sport has a habit of treating new people as if they're stupid. 
yeah. because they don't know what equipment to have. And, and what's interesting about that point as it pertains to why sell someone something in advance versus having them walk up and go. And so if you've never skied before and you're considering going skiing, first of all, if you don't buy in advance, you're less likely to walk up and go. <clears throat> Second of all, if I show up at a resort and I haven't bought something, I'm like, what do I do? And for, for anybody who's like tried a new activity and like shows up, you, you, you end up very low confidence and you end up trying to like just go through the process as fast as possible. Like, oh, I don't need a lesson. I'll, I'll just go ski. And what that means is you're not prepared for the experience. You're more likely to have a low quality experience, which means you're more likely to be like the person you just described. If someone has clear understanding of what the product is that they're buying before they go and they buy it, and then they're told, here's what you should expect when you arrive. Step one, go here. Step two, go here. Step three, go here. It means that they arrive empowered and, and they, they know what to do. So they're confident and they're told what to do. And that means they're just more likely to have a positive experience. Um, and I think that is, it, it's sort of a, there's so many reasons for pre-selling, but a lot of it is just set the customer up to have a better experience by having your buyer experience be easy, have your redemption experience be easy and, and sort of go from there. Yeah, I think that's such, that's such a great point. And then combining that with the most cost-effective way of doing it yeah. adds to it. Because it's like you said, skiing and snowboarding is an expensive sport to get into. But if you have a friend who is very immersed in it, they can help you save a ton of money. <laughs> yeah, totally. You know well, what I mean? That, I agree. And <clears throat> this is one of the, you know, the, the reasons I said, like, more of the same in terms of long-term opportunity for Liftopia is, you know, there are some things that I'm going to upset some season pass holders with these, these statements, but, you know, there's some things that are really upside down with regards to what people pay in terms of, you know, what they get. I mean, if you think about a season pass, it's, it's a highly discounted, highly premium product. And if you think, if you use it with the frequency that is intended, your per instance cost of usage is very low. Um, now, if you think about what the airlines do, the people with the highest frequency also pay the highest rates. So the premium customers pay premium rates. So I'm a business traveler. I travel, you know, a bunch of times a year. I'm not paying the low cost carrier fares. I'm paying the I need to go to New York right now fares. Now, what, what happens there is you need to have someone in the know to know about the good prices, which is sort of what you mentioned. But that means that you have to be connected to someone in the know to know about good prices. And so someone off the street who's never skied before, who's contemplating it, all they see is this, this incredibly high cost of entry, even though that's not truly the cost of entry. Um, and so that there's a lot of um, opportunity to just fix some of the mechanics of pricing such that you know people know, hey, Skiing, the cost of skiing or trying skiing is not the cost of a one-day ticket at the window during Christmas week. That doesn't have right. to be how much it costs. Um, and, and right now, you kind of have to be in a club in order to understand how to make skiing affordable. Um, and, and that is part of the reason that, uh, one of the reasons that uh, fewer people are skiing today. 
um, than there were, you know, 10 years ago. And that's, you know, sometimes the industry glosses over the fact that, hey, it's not just that the raw volume of people has, you know, stagnated, it's that relative to the population is really stagnated. And what you have is a smaller group of people skiing with higher frequency. And at some point that it doesn't scale. You're so right. It brings up so many issues that are facing the industry. And I could talk about this stuff forever. <laughs> and I know yeah. you tend to. <laughs> yeah. no, it's, uh, and and uh, I, I want to state for anybody who's listening that, that you know, probably knows more about this stuff than I do, that these are just kind of oversimplified statements. Right, right. <laughs> and it's just me speaking a little bit about sort of my concern for the, the industry as a whole. And, and you know, uh, funny statement to skiers is, you know, skiers really should care about the viability of the resorts businesses. Um, because if the, if the, the resort doesn't run a, uh, you know, a viable business, they can't invest in new, um, snowmaking equipment. They can't invest in new operations that improve the experience. Um, and so th- there really is this, Hey, if, if all of us just do what's good for us, that means that more resorts go out of business. I had this joke back in the day when, you know, <clears throat> earlier I mentioned if you don't sell this way, then people won't buy this way. But um, one of the times when I use that argument and others, someone said, well, customers don't want this. Um, and I, I argued, well, I, I imagine some customers do want this. But se- separately, you know, well, what customers want is, a, a, you know, low prices with no crowds, incredible facilities and cheap food. And that is not a viable business. Right, right. So, so the, the solving for the efficiency of the system as a whole, ultimately, if the resource businesses are healthier, the consumer experience is better, um, which means the sport gets better over time. Um, and, and I think that is uh, you know, a, a lot of the sort of rationale for you know, how we're trying to influence the, the pricing behavior of the industry as a whole. I love it. This is uh, definitely an interesting uh, trajectory for the future of, of the, the ski and snowboard industry and Liftopia. And Evan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and share your story and all the things that uh, are going on with Liftopia and uh, everything that's coming um, in the future. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, then we would be incredibly appreciative if you could log on to iTunes and leave us a quick review. This really helps us get noticed by other podcast listeners like yourself. And if you know anyone that would benefit from this episode, then please share it along. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Ready Aid Podcast. We'll catch you guys next week.